everybody, and welcome back to another week of the Proud to Work in Cannabis podcast. Happy Wednesday, happy hump day. I'm very excited to have Socrates with me today. We've been talking about doing this episode. Gosh, Sock, we've been talking about it for what feels like a year, but um, Sock Rosenfeld is one of the five co-founders, and Sock is the CEO of Jane Technologies. So, Sock, thanks for coming on today. How's it going? Uh, thank you so much, Carson. I uh, love the show, and it's an honor to be on with you today. So thanks for having me on. Where are you calling in from? I forget where you're based. Uh, based in Santa Cruz, California, Surf City, USA. So yeah, that's where that's where I'm based. Love it. And, and is most of the team there? Is most of the team remote? How are you guys navigating in-person versus remote? Yeah, we're largely a remote company. I would say maybe between 10 and 20% are in the Bay Area, and then everywhere else is scattered across mostly North America. We have one shout-out down there in in Argentina, but that's about it. Well, I want to get into that, but first, I really want to hear about your experience at West Point. So I don't think we've, we've never had anybody on the show that went to the United States Military Academy, West Point. So how did you decide that was the path that you, you wanted to go down? Wow. Yeah. I don't think I decided it for myself. I think I had other people decide it for me because at the age of 18, I don't know about you, but I, I wasn't even aware of myself really. Um, I was kind of just doing what people were telling me to do. You know, a lot of people were telling me if you have a chance to go to West Point, you go. Uh, I didn't have a, like my, wasn't my parents sat me down pretty early on and were like, Hey, you gotta go figure out this college thing on your own. So I felt like it was a great education. I could do something that not a lot of people were going to do. It was going to challenge me. Um, and I, and I decided to go and I really wasn't ready to, to go. Um, I was homesick. I didn't understand like authority and how to handle that. So I, for those that were my close friends at school, and there's not a lot of them, but there were a few, they knew that uh, I barely made it through that school um, despite myself. But I am so grateful that I was able to attend because it gave me, it taught me really what um, what friendship really was. And it taught me a, a lot about my character and who I was. And not to say that I handled everything exactly how I thought I should be handling it because I didn't. But looking back, I was put in situations that, you know, maybe normal 18, 19 year old kids never put themselves in. Um, and I'm grateful I was able to, to thankfully make it on the other side because of some really close friends who helped me get there and um, some, some great mentors that despite myself saw the best in me and helped me get, get to the other side. So uh, I'm not the best represent re- representative for that school and they'll tell you that, but I'm really grateful and honored to have, to have walked those halls. Actually, my boyfriend from high school went to the Naval Academy. And so I went down and visited. Not the same, Carl. Not the same. I'm joking. But I went down and visited, and um, I went to St. Lawrence in upstate New York. And I was, it was a very different experience. You know, I think when he came to visit me at St. Lawrence and I would go down and visit there, it was like <laughs> wildly different. For How is the first year the, the hardest at West Point, too? First year's pretty tough. You know, they. Um, I think the cool part about there's a lot of stuff I, I, I don't enjoy about the military. Um, and you asked me to be authentic, so I'm going to be authentic on this. Please, so, please, please, please. Um, so the, the, the cool stuff is that they, 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 sh- you don't, you can't have an ego at that school. 
you know, they take all these uh, seemingly like well accomplished 18 year old kids or as accomplished as you can be at the age of 18, you know, good at sports, good at education, et cetera. And they strip you down from all of that, strip that all away from you, you know, to the point where, you know, you know, you don't have a first name, they shave your head, you don't have a look, you know, you're just, you know, you're a number really. And, um, that's, that's pretty heavy to go through, but it's in some crazy weird way. Like people are trying to do that with ayahuasca right now, right. And mushrooms and like, they want the ego death. Well, you can go join the army and they'll do that. The, the issue I take with the, the, the military is they build you up in there and how they want you to be built up. They don't let you build yourself really. Um, so I got the experience of kind of letting go of the ego, um, which was really challenging. And usually that happens in the first year where to the point where like, you're not allowed to talk outside of your room. You, you know, you can't eat a lot. You have to do a lot of like weird tasks and some traditions there that, you know, you got to memorize things and upperclassmen can yell at you. Um, but really it was about that. I mean, that, that stuff is manageable But for me. The most profound, like intense thing for me was like, well, I'm not Socrates anymore from Newton South high school. And, who am I then? And it's funny that I went through that exact same experience, Carson, when I got out of the military 12, 13 years later, I didn't realize who I was. And I think a lot of military veterans experience that where the army tells you who you are. They literally tell you like, this is your rank. This is, these are your accomplishments. This is your responsibility. This is what you're allowed to do, not allowed to do say, or can't say, this is how you walk. This is how you talk. This is how you dress, which is interesting but you leave and then you really don't know who you are all over again and so um and I'm, I'm sure we'll get to it but that's what cannabis allowed me to do is connect with my true self and a lot of promotions let me do that yeah let's let's go there so you were in the military from i think 2004 to 2011 you were a pilot is that correct yeah i was uh i, I flew apache helicopters um i was a pilot there and then commanded a company um and was a platoon leader. So yeah, I did that for a while. Long time. And were you, where were you, where, where all did you go in the world? Uh, all over. It was in the Middle East. I was in Asia. Um, I was stateside. So yeah, you know, seven years jam packed, got to see all different places of the world, got to work with all different kinds of people. And that's a really cool thing. And you realize like to, to be able to do that, you know, I was uh, a platoon leader, in charge of four Apache helicopters at the age of 24 in Korea, just flying around. And now the thought of doing that is insane to me. Uh, but the army had some trust or at least they had no other option, but to go with me at that point. So you get out in 2011 and how did you think about what you were going to do with your career to your point around rediscovering yourself? Yeah. I did the exact same thing I did when I was 18. I ask other people what they think I should do, which is sad, right? The age of 30, been to Iraq, commanded a company, did all this stuff. And I get out and I had no idea what to do. And I know there's a lot of military veterans probably who have felt the same way. I think a lot of people feel the same way sometimes. And, um, you know, you ask people and that's wonderful and they can give you advice. But if you don't have conviction for yourself, you kind of fall back into the same pattern. That's what I did. This pattern of just defaulting to accomplish things to gain approval and love from people. And so they say, Oh, you should go to business school. And thankfully I listened this time because 
it was less so about the, the business degree and more so about just a two years where I could come back to myself. And that was the first time, Carson, that I had consumed cannabis and it changed my life because here I had something that was actually connecting me to myself and bringing me back to my, my heart. And uh, I knew deep down that this was something that uh, was like I was meant to, to, to be with this plant. It really felt that way. And I didn't know what I was going to do, but I knew that I loved it and I had a passion for the plant and it started reading about the industry and about Steve D'Angelo's book, you know, the cannabis manifesto and geeked out over that and started to understand the biology around it. And, um, I graduated from business school and I even, you know, that's two, that's a two year experience. And still I was asking people what I should do. And they said, Oh man, you should go and consult for this, you know, consulting firm. I said, okay, yeah, I guess that's that's what's going to get me approval and love in this world, and then I'll be happy. And so I did that, and the same thing. She went to you went to McKinsey, is that correct? Yeah, went, went to uh, yep McKinsey, um, which you know, I, I I tend to go into these institutions that I have no business getting into, and I just somehow kind of sneak sneak in. Really, if you there's a great quote during the interview process where they said. Man, Masak, we, we really like you, but we're not convinced that you can do math. And they were right. I can't. Um, so, I, but I was at McKinsey and I was, you know, studying e-commerce. And um, I was, I remember there was, a, I was, I was in a meeting with the CEO of this company. And I remember looking at the CEO and being like, what does that, what does that guy know that I don't know or. I went all to the same schools. I did all this stuff. Like, why, why can't I do that? And I quickly realized, like, all these CEOs are just human beings, right? Like, you and I are just human beings. And I was like, well, I'm a human being. I'm really passionate about this. I think there's a problem I can solve. That's when I started to really fall in love with the, the idea of Jane. And that's when my life really changed. It was the first time I think I pursued something just following my heart rather than following anything else. And, uh, yeah, that, that really changed my life. And so just to bring everyone up to speed, like timeline-wise, this is like winter of 2016 where you were getting ready to launch, Jane. Is that about the right timeline? This was, No, this was like my friends at McKinsey will probably know. Like uh, probably the first week I, I got to the firm, I knew I, I this was not right for me. Um, and I apologize to any colleague that worked with me during that time because they probably picked up on that. Um and then maybe six months into my gig at, at McKinsey, I had the idea. And that's when I worked like nights and mornings on it and weekends and um, then quit in 2016 and went full time. And uh, we didn't launch. I thought we were going to launch the product in the spring of 2016. We didn't launch the product until the spring of 2017. So that was my first uh, wake up call that things take longer than, than you think. And you mentioned that you're one of five co-founders. Can you tell us about the other four how you met them, who, who they are. Oh man. Yeah. No one ever asked me this. So I appreciate it. Cause I, I love them. I really love them. Um, the first is, um, my brother, Abe, who's the CTO. He has two computer science degrees from MIT. The dude is a genius. Um, I hesitate to say that cause he's going to have a bigger head than he already has. Uh, but a true problem solver and, um, my brother, uh, and he could probably have worked anywhere, but he was the real kind of, genius around data cleansing, et cetera. There's uh, Ben Green, who's a family friend of ours, grew up in Newton, Mass. 
uh, first generation families from South Africa. He was a landscape architect um, who knew how to design. And he actually gave me my first cannabis ever, like really like a true brother to me. And maybe for another call, Carson, I can tell you about my first time consuming. He was just a, a really just generous, loving person. And he was actually the first one crazy enough to come join me in Santa Cruz uh, he now is in on the partner success team. So if you're on the West Coast is at a dispensary, you probably have come across Ben. Then you have Howard. He's from Australia. I met him at business school, Howard Hong, uh, one of the most brilliant business minds, a, truly like in the best ways, a crazy human being. But, you know, just in a wonderful way, has just a an appetite for life and a taste for life that inspires me and motivates me every day. Uh, he's our COO slash CFO. And then you have... Um, you have Simon Roddy, who's Howard's friend from university out in Sydney, Australia, also went to business school. He was at McKinsey, just an absolute gem of a human being and can make anybody feel comfortable in no matter what situation. So he's our CRO. And um, yeah, I'm to say that I'm grateful to those folks is, would be an understatement. I The love I have for them is really, it's almost undescribable, but I, I'm just, uh, I just respect and I'm so grateful for them. So did you just call them and say, hey, I've got this idea for a cannabis company. What do you think? Or how did you get this band together? Oh, uh, yeah. Okay. That's a good – I love this. It's already a good podcast because um, you're a founder. You know it. So I called my bro. The two people I used to call, I used to have business ideas, Carson, as I'm sure you, you – you, your mind, that's the way it works. And I have all these ideas. And I call – first was my, my wife, Emily, and my – Second was my, my brother, Abe, and they would always, I called them like kind of the, uh, the dream crushers because they would always just be like, no, that's a bad idea. This won't work. That won't work. And I'd be like, damn. And then I had this idea about Jane and I told my, my wife and she was like, yeah, it's actually a decent idea, which like, if you hear that from Emily, you're like, oh my God, okay, this is good. Uh, but, and then I called Abe and his first reaction, he just said, shit. And I was like, oh, it's a bad idea. He's like, no, it's actually a really good idea. And I know by me telling you this is a good idea, you're going to go off, raise some money and try to get me to join. And at the time he was at another startup loving life. So his immediate reaction was like, oh, shit. Ben was crazy. He, he like was in between jobs, traveling. He was traveling the world on like no money. And uh, I hit, I asked him one email. I was like, hey, man, I'm doing this. You want to do this? He's like, yeah, I'm in. And, uh, so he's, he's just crazy enough to join. And then Howard and Simon both joined. Uh, I didn't even ask them. They caught wind that I was, um, starting this and I'll never forget Howard drove from San Francisco to my house in Santa Cruz. And he's like, yeah, when can I start? And I was like, well, I'm not, we don't need anybody else. He's like, cool, man. I'll just work for free and I'll bring my mate Simon along who I didn't know at the time. And I was like, cool. I'm going to get free help from these guys. And uh, I'm so grateful that I, I did. We're, we're just kind of paying them now. I'm joking. But uh, yeah, that's how it started. It didn't take a the, the Probably the person who needed the most convincing was, was Abe. Your brother. My brother. Yeah. Because he was, you know, he was in a good spot in life. And uh, I would argue he's probably in a better spot now. He would tell you that too. So between 2016, when you went into it full time, and 2017, when the product launched, were you, did you 
raise money before you launched a product? Did you <laughs> launch a light version of a product? Like talk to me about oh, first, that first year, because there's so many people out there who, yeah. ha- what you just described, have the idea right. like we had, and they really want to hear about like, right. what do you actually do from the time that you get yeah. five guys, brother, family, friends yeah. to the, you know, a product in the market? I uh, had no idea what I was doing. I still don't know, um, which I kind of like because, you know, you make a lot of mistakes, but you do things that, you know, on paper you think are impossible, but ignorance is bliss. Um, so I remember I called our, our first investor. He was a classmate of mine from, from business school, and I pitched him the business, and I will never forget. Uh, it was a small amount. I won't disclose how much. But I remember asking how much it was. It was not not a lot of money. Um, And I remember asking him for that much because I thought there's no way he would give me this much money. It was it was low six figures, I'll say. And uh, I remember he said yes. And I, of course, like every founder, give away way too much equity at the beginning. And I so I had a little bit money. And the first question he asked me was, when are you going to quit McKinsey? And that was like, oh, wow, this is getting real. Um, And so I quit. I didn't pay myself. Ben joined me. He didn't uh, pay himself. And so we're kind of working on this thing together. Abe was uh, part-time because he he had another startup. Howard and Simon actually weren't really in the mix at that point. So we were just building. We had an offshore dev. I think I Googled like cheapest offshore development firm on Google which is like the wrong thing to search for and uh, found an offshore dev. They were really sweet people, but not the best engineers. We spent uh, about a year and a half, a year waking up at four 30 in the morning. Cause we had a, they were in, uh, in, in Russia at the time and we were doing remote and trying to put this thing together. There was like no test code. There was no like design system. It was just gnarly. And uh, I remember thinking we were going to launch in January of 2017. Uh, We were working on this thing for a year. Somebody told me to like, hey, if you're working for an offshore dev, you might want to just get an onshore dev just to look at this thing and make sure it's it's up to snuff. And so we we brought in another dev firm to take another look at this thing. They were expensive and they looked at it and I'll never forget. They told me they were like, you're going to have to rebuild the whole thing, man. This is bad. The whole front end is like, it's not usable. And I, it was like, oh, it was just heart wrenching. And so we sunk our, the rest of our money into this thing. I had like $30,000 left when we launched. And then quickly, once we launched, uh, started to raise the series A and the series A took me about a year to raise through small checks. And that was the journey, just kind of like piecing this thing together. For I should have probably done this earlier, but for people listening who may not know Jane, what was the, we, we can talk about what the product is today, but the original pitch, when you called up your business school friend and asked for the first check, what was the pitch and what was the problem you were solving right away? Can you, can you make shopping online for cannabis as simple as shopping online for any, anything else in this world? At the time, I was doing a lot of studies on aggregators like DoorDash and Uber Eats and Postmates and 1-800-Flowers and was like, man, uh, this, this, uh, at the time I thought it was like a marketplace play and that's obviously evolved for the eight years that we've been building this thing. But um, at, at its core, 
I think it's the same as can you, can you help people order online for cannabis and can you support the businesses that are selling that selling, you know, offline products? Can you help them sell online as well? And that's, that's been the thesis really since day one. And so you get the product out, then you start piecing together the series A, which takes about a year, year and a half. Once you got that completed, what were the critical things that you did after Series A, so so this is like 2018, 2019-ish? 2018, 2019, you hire your next band of crazy, generation of crazy people to join you. Um, at the time, we, we did the first year plus with really like six people. I want to shout out Ezra, our employee number one, who's a college student at UCSC at the time, who joined us just to do whatever. Uh, he's still with us too. Um, so thank you, EC. We, we hired Brian Geddes, who's now our VP of sales. We hired Al Rosenfeld, who is our, who's now our SVP of partner success. We hired Tim Zielinski, who's our uh, director of business development. Wow, that's really impressive that all of these folks are here six years later. Oh, yeah. That's, uh, that's um, the average tenure of a director or above at the company is 40 months Wow, at the company. So long tenure. We don't very rarely do we hire an outside leader to come in. We have a saying here where we grow our own. I learned that from the military. I learned that from McKinsey as well. You don't hire outside leaders. You, you kind of marry them in the sauce and you have a program that can grow and scale them. And that's honestly been why, why the culture at Jane is what it is, is because of our leadership. And uh, I am so grateful to, to every single leader at the company because they are really bought into the Jane way. They understand what we're trying to do, why we're trying to do it and how we do it. And um, I don't think you can get that by bringing someone in from fill in the blank outside company. Uh, you do you get that by growing our own. And we've made that mistake, and it's a uh, it's like a culture killer. I think about Bankston for the first like until we raised the Series A, we never we just only really promoted from within, and we had almost no turnover. Yeah, and then. You know, I would say between Series A and especially after Series B, and you know it more than anyone, you get the pressure from your board and your investors to, yeah. in our case, go hire the VP of sales from Indeed, which like, right. so you spend six months finding the person and then bring them in and then they bring in a slew of their own people and then the, peop the original people are pissed and the new people are also pissed and then like, all of a sudden you're sitting there and you're like, wow, now nothing is working. So I wish I would have listened to this podcast before I made the colossal mistake. Um, but for company number two, I, I definitely know, but I, I think that you don't, and I, you, that is cool about back to like things that you've learned from the military of growing from within, grow your own, your own way. I mean, I think that's a lesson that it's so hard to learn the way that I learned. So I wish I would have just, you know, called you. Yeah. Right. Um, uh, I still interview every single employee that candidate that comes through, like on the final. And by the time they interview me, it's pretty much a shoe in. But what I'm checking are two things. One is like, okay, who is this human being that's coming into the organization? Less so like salesperson, engineer. But really what I'm doing is I'm checking in on my hire, hires to make sure that we are hiring the right kinds of people, not the best people, but the right people. And that's a really good QC uh, process for us because we, we don't really make any we, we make some mistakes obviously but I would say 90 95 percent of the time we, we don't make a mistake on the, the kind of human being that comes into the organization and where I've made mistakes Carson is I listen to you know my, my favorite are the investors that are like oh this worked in this company it's 
it's going to work here. So you, this is what you need at this stage. And that's really like a parent telling another parent like, oh, your kid's two. You really need to get your kid doing this. But really the mother or the father knows that better than anyone. You know, it's great to get advice, but ultimately you're going to do what's right for your child. And Jane's kind of my, my, my child along with the co-founders. And quite frankly, along with the leadership now, it's theirs as much as it is mine. Yeah, we were just uh, really lucky to have put in the process now because now it's just we very rarely we don't look for an outside executive. I think we've hired two outside executives for the past six, seven years, and we've just grown the rest. So you you do that you get to the Series A, then talk to us about because you've raised uh, you you've probably raised close to you've you've raised a quite a bit of capital, definitely one of the companies that have raised the most in the space. So then what happened after um, this, the Series A in terms of your capital journey? Yeah, we we raised the Series B. Pretty straightforward, same deal, raised uh, $20 million, $21 million, and that was in 2019. And I'll never forget we were raising it. We were, we were, fu- we were good. Then COVID happens and like things go nuts, really crazy for all of us. You know, I think LeafLink at the time had raised a lot of money, like 80 million or something they had around or 40 million or something like that. And then, uh, you know, we, we opened up the laptop one day and I, I read that Dutchie raised 200 million. And I was like, wow, is this even possible in this space? It was like, I wasn't even thinking about that. So I have some thoughts on that of like, you know, was the industry ready? Were tech companies ready? I don't think so, uh, in my opinion. So it kind of, there was, it created a massive imbalance in the space. I'm not calling Dutchie out or anybody, but at the same time too, what it did was it opened our eyes and stretched us as to what is possible, um, which I'm grateful for. And we, you know, being Dutchie's kind of main competitor, uh, decided to raise at a you know similar time. It was able to raise a hundred million off that. And um, man, like you, you, you study these business use cases and things like that. And it's just a, uh, you, you kind of are in the right time at the right position and we raised it. And I'm so grateful we did at the time. So it's a blessing and a curse. Like was the industry ready to have, you know, tech companies raising hundreds of millions of dollars. I would argue if they were good stewards of it, maybe. Um, but at the same time, was it great that we were able to stretch ourselves and think like, Hey, there's some real capital here. This is not like a kind of uh, cottage industry that, you know, you have to convince your uncle to invest in. These are real players moving into this space. And um, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful that we had some tech players in the here. You included uh, at banks raising some good capital for some great investors. Like that, I thought that was really, really positive for the industry. It's a matter of now, can we, can we execute on that? But that's just not, that's not an issue just for the cannabis tech, it's tech in general. So was that the $100 million round? Was that the last round that you've done? Last round. Yep. Last round. You're not raising anymore. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. I mean, I feel like to your point around just like you got to do things when the timing is right, it was almost foolish for us, banks included, not to raise money during 2021, 2020. But now it seems like not the ideal time for any tech company in or outside of cannabis. And so how have you changed your mentality from focusing on growth to focusing on profitability, making the capital 
last, I do feel sometimes when I talk to people, it was a little bit like whiplash. It was like grow as fast as you can and raise another round in 18 months to like, okay, be profitable and grow sustainably. Yeah. I mean, call it a spade a spade. Like that's, that's, that's Dutchie setting the pace. You know, they were, they were the leaders in, in fundraising, very aggressive, very fast. They joined up and partnered up with Tiger Global, who is notorious for really throwing out any kind of business fundamentals and just throwing as much. I remember sitting with the uh, investor at uh, Tiger Global, and um, this is a very candid conversation. So hopefully this this uh, no, we, we're all about the we, we want the candid. This is what you wanted, and I remember talking to to the investor who represented Tiger Global, who's the portfolio manager there, who's about to invest in Dutchy. And, um, it was just, I was, I asked him why he didn't do it in his, like in his due diligence. Why didn't he talk to us at Jane? I thought that was weird. Um, cause the investors that wanted to invest in Jane definitely did their due diligence and talked to our competitors to make sure that they were betting on the right, right horse. Um, and I remember he said, uh, he said, he said something that was very interesting to me. He's like, we don't do due diligence here. We talk to a founder and if we like the founder, we're going to give that founder more money than he could ever dream of and they're going to win. And that's, that was a real conversation. And I remember thinking to myself, man, that seems in, like an interesting approach. Um, and so it was, and you, and you saw Dutchie raise again, right? After the 200, they raised, I think like 350 million more from other like tiger-like Tiger Global like investors. <clears throat> and that was their play. And that was everybody's play. It's like, it's not, it's not a bad thing. It was just how everybody was getting rewarded was how fast you could go. Like, can you grow a hundred percent year over year over year over year and get more and more and more investment and basically starve out your competitors and then figure out monetization from there. You saw it with like DoorDash try to play that game, right? Um, shit. Even Uber tried to play that game and Dara got unprofitable, but, uh, Snapchat, right? Another one. It's like they're, they're, they will never be profitable. <clears throat> so those days of can you build a company for speed are over. And now it's about resiliency. Now it's about endurance. Now it's about profitability. And so for us, to be honest with you, we, we have always been built for endurance. It took a lot for us to like say, you know, screw the fundamentals, go fast, go fast, grow, 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 grow. Who cares about your customers? Just keep growing, keep growing. And that never felt natural. I'm, I'm a big hippie now, Carson. I like walk in the woods a lot. And if you look at that nature, like things go slowly. Nothing happens overnight. Uh, and things don't grow 100% year over year over year over year forever in perpetuity. And so the, this is this is why the tech industry is where it's at today is because we created something that's not natural. And in order to have a natural growth, you have to be able to power your own growth. And so – we always have been building with fundamentals. That's why we're only about 200 employees um, when our competitors were up to like three, four, five, six, seven, eight hundred employees. Um, so I think have we had to make an adjustment? Absolutely. Cause the arena and the, the, the kind of construct has, has changed and the way companies get rewarded has changed, but I'm glad that for us, the correction, I, I don't think has been as drastic maybe for some other companies. And I'm grateful. It sounds like you're able to now operate the way that you're more comfortable operating. Much, much better. Like slowing down the growth, letting, you know, being resourceful with the cost, 
growing at the pace that your culture and the product can allow for, like that's, that's natural to me. And uh, for the past really decade with these big hedge funds coming in and, and just raising these insane multi-billion dollar funds, it threw everything out of whack. And I think as painful as it is to correct, I think the ecosystem will be a lot better for it moving forward. So you said that you're a big hippie and you're going on walks in the woods now. What, what, as, a, as a founder, what are the things that you do, speaking of endurance, to make sure that you have the endurance and you have the stamina to stay on the field for a long time? Because to your point around how it's really hard and unnatural for companies to grow 200%, yeah. 200%, 200%. Founders get, you and I know it, we get stretched like a crazy amount. Yeah. What do you do for yourself to, to stay on the field? Um. So, so I can answer this in, in kind of three parts. Physically, I, I, um, I'm really paying attention to the physical more so than ever. If you knew me in the army, if you know anyone in the army, really don't take care of your body. You're not taught to do that, which is strange. You should. Uh, but like just basic stuff. Are you hydrated? Do you go to sleep? Can you move your body and feel good in it? Like just, just normal, normal things. I'm 41 now, so. Uh, it's, it's really is true. You're, when you hit 40, you're like, damn, I'm old. Uh, or I'm starting to feel old. So that's, I was, no, I don't think so. I was, I was just talking to someone about how I can't wait for my, I feel like forties are like the decade people really thrive in their forties. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm not saying it's bad, but I'm saying I have to stretch more. Um, it's yeah, it, it gets better. Fourth floor is nice, Carson. So I'll see you. Fourth floor. Well, I just turned thirty, so I'll see you at the fourth. I'll see you at the fourth floor. Thirties, oh, thirties are amazing. Thirties for me were the time, the decade of saying no. Um, so enjoy that. Let's talk about that in in a little bit. But but back to so so you're making sure that you're. My body's good mentally. I am. Uh, I read. I meditate. I try not to, um, uh, like. I don't know. It sounds so old, but I, I try to be very disciplined with the inputs that go into my brain as much as I love, you know, summer house and reality TV. Sometimes uh, I really have to pay attention to that because my, I need to make decisions like good decisions and I can't just be kind of numbed out all the time um, and distracted. And then really the, the most important is protecting my heart and uh, giving myself a break and realizing that I'm just a human being doing the best I can too and showing myself grace and empathy and forgiveness and non-judgment, like all the things you, you give to your employees, can you give that to yourself? And that has been the hardest, most challenging practice, if I'm being honest, because uh, I wasn't taught to do that. Um, and I am, I'm glad that I'm using this opportunity as scary as life may be sometimes as an entrepreneur can you sit with it and just be there for yourself and not go against yourself? Something I'm working on. Um, and that's, that's been a wonderful practice and I'm really grateful for this opportunity to be able to practice that. I, I need to practice that. I'll tell you that I have, I'm taking a lot of notes on this podcast. I want to talk about cannabis 2023 from where you sit, you see you, you work with thousands of businesses in the space. You know, people are, as we said before we started recording, it's gnarly out there. Uh, what are you seeing from where you sit in just terms of the overall space? Yeah, I think there, I think people are tired. I think we've, we like ran this race thinking there was a finish line 
Simon Sinek has, says it best in one of his books. Um, where like the game of business, there is no finish line. The game of life, there is no finish line. So, you know, don't, don't, don't sprint past your capabilities. Like just realize like you, you need to be built for endurance. So I think a lot of people like thought maybe this was going to be like a get rich quick scheme. Uh, like, Hey, we're going to get in. We're going to say we're the so-and-so of cannabis. We're going to ride this. And then we're going to sell this thing when it gets legal and we're out. And we built up a, a wrong expectation in our collective minds of like, Oh, during the midterm safe banking is going to go or Biden got elected. This is going to go legal. So I think the fallout from just disappointment after disappointment on the expectations has really made people tired. So for me, I'm just like, cool. I'm, I'm running cause I want to run. I'm not running to finish a race. Uh, I being like collective chain, we, I should say, um, I, I, I do, I do. I think a lot of businesses rode this wave, uh, and really had no fundamentals. Absolutely. And that's where you're seeing a lot of the fallout retailers who don't care about margins uh, and just care about like growth, uh, brands that don't care about knowing their customer and just kind of want to catch some trend, like really not focused on the fundamentals. Now it's caught up with them. And that's unfortunately where we're seeing a lot of the fallout. And unfortunately in this is direct to your business, you see like this affects human beings lives who can, it's not the employee's fault. Right. And I'm not saying it's any individual's fault, but there was a lot of like build up, screw the fundamentals. We're going to sell this thing when it goes legal. legal. Legality doesn't come as soon as we want. And now you're seeing this massive correction. Um, but what gives me hope is the fact that, and we, I see this with, in, with the data, this is factual. There are new customers joining the industry at a rate, just like before people are shopping more so than they have ever before. Yes, price compression is, 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 is a real thing. Yes, stores are closing, but the demand is there. Like you, you would, I would be nervous from a business standpoint and quite frankly from a citizen of the world standpoint if all of a sudden people start to get sick with cannabis or people start to realize like, oh, my God, it's extremely addictive and it's, you know, whatever, all the all the stuff that's not true, that none of that is true. Like that's the real scary shit. The, the, the real stuff that's scary now is, oh man, I thought this company is going to be worth X. It's not worth X anymore. Oh my God, the sky is falling. Cannabis isn't hot anymore. And that's just bullshit. Yeah. I actually think about it. It's like, it's not, I mean, like it's not one of these crazes like NFTs or something where it's not really real. Like there's yeah. people purchasing, consuming cannabis every day. It's helping people every single day. It's taking people off of their you know, ridiculous drugs that they shouldn't be on in, in the first place. And so I'm with you that it's like, it is frustrating and it's also frustrating. I, I would actually like your take on this because it's frustrating to explain to especially investors who, who are like, I don't get it. There's so many people consuming cannabis. Why is nobody making any money? You know? And I feel like that's like the common, the common question. And it is like, it is a little bit confusing, but so then you try to go down the path of explaining, well, there's this thing called 280E and there was companies that didn't care about fundamentals and the space was hot and now it's not. And we're in this massive correction, but it's going to get better. But people are like, when? So I really, I really liked your line around your running because you want to run, not because you're trying to 
finish the race. I think that's the right, the right mentality in, in this endurance moment. You got it. Like go back to, I know you started around the time we started, you started like 2016, right? Yeah. Yeah. May of 2016. May 2016. Remember those days? Best time. And you couldn't, you couldn't, you couldn't talk to a single person who was in this industry for like, it's like, oh man, this cured my Crohn's disease. Or I had a mother who died of cancer. It was this, or like, Hey, I got out of prison and I want to serve the industry back again. Like that was it. And then money started getting involved. Right. And this is the game we play in a capitalistic country that is America. And I defended this country and love it. But this is like anytime money gets involved, you run the risk of losing the why. And the why becomes make money. The why becomes return my investment. The why becomes get on the cover of Forbes, whatever that is. We forget the why. And for us at Jane, the why has always come back to the plant because the plant's the answer. Software's not the answer. Brick and mortar's not the answer. Cool brands aren't the answer. Get the plant in people's hands. The way we you know, we know how to best do that is to build a business and provide that access or to hire people to get into the space, right? Like you guys are doing. It was never about, let me build this thing so I can make money. Investors, 90 9% of investors out there, that's their job is to make money, right? And so that's why they're disappointed. But look at how far we've come as an industry. And I would say none of that's possible without GTI or Vangst or the small cottage, you know, mom and pop shop in Oregon or Jane or Weed Maps or Dutchie. Like we're all involved in shaping this consciously or non, not, not consciously. And at Jane, what we try to do is always come back to our why. Why are we building software? Why are we raising more money? Why are we hiring these people is to come back to protect the integrity of this plant. And if we come back to that and we fail, okay. Because if we, if we lose sight of that and we make a ton of money, is that really success? And, uh, you know, we don't have a lot of venture capital on, at Jane. We raised over $130 million but we haven't had to go to the big tiger globes of the world. Number one, cause they wouldn't take our call. But number two, uh, you know, the, the benefit is we had a lot of people who bought into our why and I'm here because of the why. And I would argue that the, the employees at Jane are there for the why we're not certainly paying them enough where they can't go make more money at another company. So maybe, maybe this great extinction event in cannabis is needed. Maybe the plant knows, Hey, we need to course correct here. And the people who can ride it out and endure are the ones that are going to benefit. Um, but let's not, let's not lose our collective why in this industry. And it's, it's kind of sad to me to see kind of in short order, how quickly we've, we've abandoned the why. Um, and I don't need a reminder because it's, it's, it helped me. It helps me every day. Oh, one of the things I didn't mention that helps me with, with being an entrepreneur Shit, I should have just said, I mean, surfing is great. Cannabis is like one of my best friends. Seth Rogen says uh, in his book, The Yearbook, I don't know if you read it, um, Carson. You, I, haven't, I haven't read it, but I, I will. It's good. Um, he talks about how the fact that he always has to justify or defend his cannabis consumption. And I thought it was so brilliant the way he structured it in his kind of comedic mind. He said, it was like, well, this is like, no one, no one asked me why I wear suntan or, or sunscreen. No one asked me why I wear shoes. Like that's not natural, <laughs> yeah. you know, uh, but I wear it every day because we burnt, you know, burnt a hole in the ozone. And if I don't wear sunscreen, I'm going to get burnt and hurt my skin. Like, so I'm using it every day. Cannabis 
we've created a very stressful world. This is very stressful out there. I don't tell anybody. And to be an entrepreneur and a CEO is very stressful. Man, to get a little bit of meditation, to take a moment for yourself and connect back to your heart. And that's what the plant does for you. Fuck, that's the why. That's the why. Well, this is the perfect ending point. I, I had some other questions, but your last your last yeah. five minutes and bringing it back to the why, I feel like is a great place to wrap. So, Sock, if people want to get in touch with you, potentially want to join the team, be part of the culture, I, I know that you're not hiring any executives, but maybe they could enter in a, in a lower position and grow from within the, the culture at Jane. How can the folks get in touch with you or the people who are hiring at Jane? Re- reach out to us, info at iheartjane.com. I read every single email on info at. Um, go to our careers page. We have some, some postings there. Uh, hit me up on LinkedIn um, or go through banks. Well, suck. Thank you so much. Well, I'll see you in Vegas this year. What is this? Our like ninth year in a row? Yeah, Vegas. I know. I know. We have to do. I'll I'll organize the dinner again this year. So I hope hope you can make it. I mean, that'd be pretty cool. Yeah, it's like, hey guys, let's not forget. Yeah, let's not forget the why. Maybe it would be cool if we at the dinner for people listening. We do a founders dinner. We've been doing it like the last three, four years. It'd be cool to have everybody share their why and just talk about, be cool. bring us back to 2016 till today. So I've got some ideas. Maybe you and I can partner up for the dinner. Cool. Yeah, let me know. Well, sounds great. Thanks to everybody for tuning in. Sock, always great to see you and I'll see everybody soon. Thanks. Thanks so much. Bye. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. I'm Joyce Gerber, the creator and host of the award-winning podcast, The Canna Mom Show. And we are on a mission to enhance the impact women have on this industry as business professionals, healthcare providers, policy advocates, caregivers, moms, by sharing and preserving their stories of love and kindness, wisdom, and hope. I am so grateful to have found my tribe of Canada podcasters right here on PodConX and look forward to our work of crushing the stigma around cannabis and caregivers and building this new industry together.